Oh God, would you fill us with the Holy Spirit as we spend time together in your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Her mom and dad could not understand. They had done everything they possibly could to provide her the very best upbringing. I mean, she was raised in the wealthiest of families in Britain. She had all of the opportunities to do what a young lady in Britain should do. But she seemed to be intent on rejecting her parents' plans for her lives. They planned for her to get married. They planned for her to be a part of high society, to to have a a wonderful big home with lots of children and, and, and to be a part of the society in a way that that people would look at what a beautiful woman that she was. One day, her sister, Parthi, was so upset. She said, I cannot understand. She's so selfish. She's so arrogant. She thinks that she knows better than we do. I don't understand what is wrong with my sister. But Flo had a mission and a purpose. She had determined that she did not want what they had set out for her. She had determined that she was going a different way, that she didn't care about her reputation. She did not care about the life that her parents had for her, but she wanted to go in her own direction. Last week, we looked at John chapter 12, and we talked about the wise men who came from the West. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. If you remember that this comes right after the triumphal entry. That moment when the Pharisees say the entire world is going after Jesus. The whole world is flocking after him. We've done nothing of value in stopping Jesus. Everybody is going after him. And then John skips over that little part where Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple and all of those other things that we find in the other Gospels. And he goes straight to this in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among them who came up to worship at the feast. And we talked about how these Greeks to come would have had to spend probably $30,000 each, 300 to 400 denarii, to make this journey, a 10-day plus journey across the Mediterranean Sea to get to come to this tiny little place to worship at this temple of a God that they knew very little about. Compared to their beautiful, magnificent temples and all of the gods that they served who required all of these sacrifices and things to appease them, why would they come to Jerusalem? And we learned here in verse 21, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, he has a Greek name, of Galilee, and asked them, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Just let that sink in. What they really, really want is to see Jesus. That's got to be the cry of my heart. That's got to be the cry of your heart. That we would see Jesus and that we would reveal Jesus to this world. Because that is attractive. We wish to see Jesus. Now this is an incredible thing. We, we put up two maps last week and I want to put these maps up again. Because you remember how Jesus in his lifetime, the farthest he ever traveled that we know of was when? Where? To Egypt when he was a little child. And in his ministry, he never traveled outside of Palestine. So I'll put the first map up if we can get it back there. And you'll see a little red circle that kind of gives you an idea. It overlaps into Egypt, but it shows the area that Jesus may have traveled. Right? So Jesus probably stayed in that area of Palestine. And these Greeks came. I'll put up the next slide. 
all the way from Greece across the Mediterranean. And they come to him with this, we don't know exactly what all is behind it, but they're saying, we want to see Jesus. And behind that is that they are Greeks, they're from another country. There is a whole world out there that Jesus hasn't touched at this point. People that are inviting him, and Jesus at this point could say, okay, the cross sounds really painful. I'm going to Greece to heal some more people. The cross sounds really shameful. I'm, I'm going to go to the world now and show them who my father is. I don't know about this whole cross business. They're going to reject me here anyway, so I'm just going to go to Greece and show them who the true God is. And if I know anything about Satan, I believe he was throwing a temptation like that at Jesus. But you remember that we saw what Jesus said in verse 23. He said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's saying, this is the hour in which I am to be glorified. But then in verse 24, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see here, he's not saying, I'm going to go and impact the world by, uh, sharing, by going and doing all of these uh, big things. But instead, he's saying, what's going to impact the world is my death, my humbling myself, my going to the grave, my going to the cross. That is what will impact the world. We're going to break down a little bit more of what Jesus says here in John chapter 12. Uh, going through these verses after this. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It will be multiplied. But then Jesus takes it. At this point, we've, we looked at last week how this led us to the place of seeing that, that Jesus said that if I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all to myself. That gift of unselfishness, that, that unending up, upending of this principle of selfishness that is dominating this planet, if I am lifted up in selfless, self-giving love, it will draw the whole world to myself. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at the place of what he's going to do for us. Last week we said we're going to challenge ourselves to read the Bible by looking at it through the filter of the cross, reading it based on his unselfish love. But notice that Jesus doesn't leave it here at the place of what he does for us. But notice what the next verse says in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He who loves his life will lose it. This is very contrary to the principles of this planet. This is contrary to the principle of selfishness. This is contrary to what makes sense in the evolutionary scheme of things. If we were to think about how life is preserved on this planet, it's preserved by watching out for my life. Survival of the fittest. Isn't that the way it works? But Jesus says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he's comparing it to this agricultural language of saying, if you have that grain and you say, I love this little grain and I'm going to preserve it, I'm going to keep it on my shelf, you're going to end up losing it. 
Eventually, you're going to have bugs come and eat it. But if that grain is put in the soil and dies, it will come up and spring up in new life. Revival will happen out of that death. Just like through the cross, the world would come to see God's glory. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now there's some tough things here in these verses. If you think about it, if you really look at what God is saying here, there's some really challenging things. I want to put up four different challenges that God calls us to in these verses, that Jesus is calling us to. And they're not easy things, right? So the first call, what would be the first thing that Jesus tells us to do in verse 24, when he says that a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will bring forth fruit. What is he calling us to do there? He's calling us to die. Jesus calls us to die. That isn't real pleasant to sit here and think about. We've been worshiping this God, saying how great is his love, and he's calling us to die. This is a difficult and and, and a tough and challenging call that Jesus gives to us. So the first call is to die. What about the next verse? He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is Jesus calling us to do there? What is it? To hate our lives. It's not even fun to say, is it? We're sitting here like, okay, this is supposed to be an encouraging sermon this morning. And so far we're saying about dying. And now we're saying that we need to hate our life. Now, just a little encouragement from the Greek. The word for hate is miseo, which can mean to love less. Okay, that's just, maybe that'll make you feel a little better walking out of here. But Jesus is saying, you can't love your life. You've got to hate it. You've got to love it less than you love me. What's the the third thing that we find in here? If anyone serves me, let him follow me. What does it challenge us to do? To follow. He says, follow after me. And what is Jesus telling them to follow him in at this point? This is Tuesday of Passover week, likely. Where is Jesus headed? He's headed to the to the cross. He's headed to give his life. And Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to go and give my life for you. But I want you to take up your cross and to follow me. Jesus said that five different times in his ministry. Besides this time, this would be the sixth time where he says, I want you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow after me. That's what I'm calling you to. To a life that is lived with the same selfless love that I am displaying for you. On the cross, I'm showing you that I love you more than myself. That I would do absolutely anything to see you saved. I will do whatever it takes, even to the place where I will lay down my life for you. That's how valuable you are to me. I'm laying down my life for you. And Jesus doesn't just do that so we can say, well, that's wonderful, and then we can sing Kumbaya and go home. 
But he does it because he knows that that is the principle that will transform the world, that will actually make us happy if we only will follow after Jesus, follow him with our cross, if we'll deny ourselves too. And then finally, what's the last thing that we're called to there? The verse continues in verse, we're in verse 26. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Jesus calls us to four difficult things. To die, to hate our lives, to follow, and to serve. We're called to these things. This is what the Christian walk is all about. And if we just look at this on the surface and we say, man, being a Christian is really, really hard. I don't know if I can handle this. This just sounds like too much for me. Jesus is troubled after saying this in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. He's thinking about what God the Father has laid out before him, what they have planned from eternity that they want to do for us, and he's troubled by it. He's deeply in anguish thinking about it. He says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Should I pursue the path of selfishness? But for this hour, I came to this planet. Verse 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. You see, something had happened to Flo when she was 17 years old. She had grown up in high society, her dad had hired private tutors so that every possible chance she was learning the languages, she was learning high things. But then when she turned 16, her sister Parthi was 18, she was no longer schooled by her father, but instead was shipped off to be a part of high society. But at 17 years of age, just after she started this life of socializing, this life of getting to know what it's like to just be a part of the the elite in Britain, with this prospect of grandeur before her, this prospect of just a rich life as some famous person's wife, God appeared to her and she records it in a diary like this. God called me in the morning and asked me, Would I do good for him alone without reputation? She didn't know much about God at this point. She hadn't experienced much of what you might call Christianity and reading the Bible. But God showed up to her and said, Will you choose me and doing good over your reputation? Will you choose a life of service? And she had impelled in her, she had this idea that what I need to do is to serve. And she didn't know how to do that at first. She just began to go out and look for the poor and needy in her own town. And she would go and she would try to feed them. She'd try to help them. One time there was a lady who had a child who couldn't take care of the child. And she begged her parents, please, just let me take care of this child. Just let me move to the cottage of this lady and I'll take care of the child for her. She had had a seed planted in her heart that she wanted not to love her life but to live her life for the good of others. I love what it says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 86, talking about what takes place in our lives when we experience 
what Jesus has described as the seed falling into the soil. It says, And all who would bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first fall into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need. Self-love, self-interest must perish. Jesus calls us to cast away our lives into the, the furrow, as you might call it. That's the, for those of you that aren't familiar with farming like Matt is, that's, that's where you, you put the seed in, in, the, in the soil. I understand I'm not very familiar with farming either. But we need to cast ourselves just like that seed into the ground and give up our own priorities, our own desires for our lives to let self be done away with. Um, let's go back to that previous slide actually all i think we're actually on a different one it's a little bit earlier on all who would bring forth fruit i thought it was up there as workers together with christ must first fall into the ground and die the life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need self-love self-interest must perish this is what jesus is calling us to and this is what he called flow to. When she was 17 years old and she wasn't sure if she could handle this, it sounded big. It sounded something greater than she could handle, but God was calling her on a mission. And she began to have this vision. You know what? What I need to learn to do is to become a nurse. I'm going to become a nurse. Now, today that sounds like a good calling. In fact, it's a, it's a calling where you can earn a, a fair living. It's, it's a calling that is respected today. But you have to understand that this was in the 1800s. And in the 1800s, most nurses were drunks. The reason that they were drunks was because in order to go to the hospital and handle the conditions that were there, the smell alone, they had a, a, a terminology just for the hospital smell, they called it. It was so wretched because they didn't clean the, the victim's wounds. More people died in the hospital because they went to the hospital. I mean, you may think that still happens today, but hospitals are actually a good place today. They save lives. Back then, they were terrible places. They were built on cesspools. They had all kinds of just filth throughout them, rats running rampant. And nurses were the lowest and vilest of women who would go to these places in order to be willing to care for people who were dying anyway. And here Flo says, I want to be a nurse. I want to go serve people. I want to go help people. I want to go make a difference in people's lives. What does that take in our lives today? What does it take to actually decide that that's what I'm going to do with my life? We're going to have a little bit of an experience with that tomorrow. We're going to have the Hope Clinic. This church is going to be transformed into a place of healing where people's lives can actually be impacted. And friends, this is an incredible thing. I can't tell you when the last time was that our phone rang as many times as it has rung this week. I can't tell you when our Facebook page had as many hits as it had this past week. I can't tell you when there has been as many people excited about Templeton Hills Seventh-day Adventist Church as there has been over the past week. Why is that? It's because something is happening here that is self-sacrificing. Tomorrow there's going to be dentists who are saying, yeah, I I could be having a day off, but instead I'm going to be donating my services, my, my well-trained services to care for people's teeth. We have 
people here who are trained in, in working with eye exams and, and getting people eyeglasses. We have people who are going to be taking care of feet. We have people who are going to be answering questions about hypertension and all kinds of uh, ask the doctor type of questions, nutrition. So many things are going to be happening here with physical therapy, massage, and people with real needs, real pains care about what's happening here. They want to come to Templeton Hills Seventh-day Adventist Church. And you know that this is exactly what Jesus did right before the Greeks came to him in the temple. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 21. Hold your finger in John 12 because we'll come back here. But in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple. In verse 12, it says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, As it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then who came to him? The blind, the lame, came to him in the temple and, healed, and he healed them. Let me ask you something. Normally what happens right here is that the word of God is shared. People sing songs. We worship. But is it okay that we're going to partition off this stage this coming Sabbath so that people can have physical needs met even right here on this platform? Now, if you have a, a problem with that, I suggest that you look to what Jesus did in the temple. When, when all of the money changers were cast out and the tables were overturned, Jesus turned the temple into what he meant it to be, a house of prayer where people could come and experience healing. So thank you for being willing to serve. Thank you for what's going to happen right here, the place where I'm standing, people getting massages, people getting physical therapy. Lives are going to be changed in this building. And that's what Jesus has designed for his church to do. And he doesn't just design that we could look at the cross and wonder and say, look at the unselfish love of God. Yes, we need to look in order to live. But he also says, now come and follow me because I want for you to participate in these things because I want for you to experience the joy that comes from selfless love. The joy that comes from selfless giving, from selfless serving. I want for you to share my glory with this planet. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And here's the thing. God isn't just going to draw people by the cross, but he's going to draw people by having the cross repeated in our own hearts. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Do you remember that verse? If you remember it, just repeat it with me. I have been crucified with Christ Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. Not only is it an experience that I look to, but it's an experience that comes in and becomes a part of me. And the beautiful thing is, 
That though this sounds difficult, though this sounds painful, it is something that has already been accomplished for you. Jesus has already gone the distance for you. He is your representative. He is your Savior. And you can't die to yourself. It's not possible to selflessly love people. Tomorrow, as we look at people coming in, it's tempting to judge them for where they come from. It's tempting to look at them and say, well, they brought this pain on themselves. But it's only as Jesus comes into our hearts and fills us that we can be filled with that same love for our community. Florence went on to go to a church, to a school in Germany. Her father finally consented, and he, he, sent her, he gave her a huge amount of money, actually, on a yearly basis, in my opinion, like $65,000 a year to live off of in order to go and to finally train to be a nurse. She found a school that was at least moral in the way that they trained nurses, and she began to train in the practice of becoming a nurse. In the process of training, she gained some friends, and she ended up coming back and was running a hospital in Britain and became friends with the Secretary of War in Britain. God was leading her step by step in her life, and it was the little things along the way that were opening up doors for her to serve in bigger ways. God promises that as we go through this process, as we die to self, as we put Jesus first in our lives, as we love him, everything is going to change. Did you notice the promises that go along with those four calls in John chapter 12? Let's go back there again. We're going to read these verses again because we want them to sink in deeply. What was the promise in verse 24 when it said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, what, what is the result if it falls into the ground and dies? It bears much fruit. So we're called to die. Okay, these are further down. There's where you'll see two columns. Four promises that were given. If we die, we will bear much fruit. You see that there? Is that, is that clear from the, the Bible? When we die, we will bear much fruit. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for what? Eternal life. Jesus presents this glorious, beautiful future. And for that joy that's set before us, we can go through the process of the cross in our own lives. He promises that we will keep our life for eternity. And then verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And I love this one. This is one of my favorite ones. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus doesn't just call you to go out and serve on your own. He doesn't call you to do it in your own strength, but he calls you to be a co-laborer with him. He calls you for fellowship with him. He calls you to follow so that you can be with Jesus. And there's nothing better than that because in his presence is fullness of joy. Jesus knows that to serve, to love, to give your life is of more value for you personally. He knows that it will give you greater happiness than anything else. How many of you have served in the Hope Clinic before? How did you feel? Just just name some emotions that you felt by the end of the day. Anybody? Blessed by the end of the day. What was it? Joy. What else? Satisfying. 
It's a good feeling to know that you're helping make a difference in people's lives. It's a good feeling to know that somebody who's had tooth pain for months, that they haven't been able to take care of because they couldn't afford it, no longer has that pain. It's a blessing to know that you're making a difference in people's lives. And finally, we're called, what does it say, to serve. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. We're called to a life of service, but the promise at the end is that through that service, we will be honored as we see Jesus lifted up and people drawn to Jesus. That's the promise of the Word of God. That's what God is longing to do. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, when they say to him, well, how could the Son of Man be lifted up? We don't understand. How is this the value that the, the Christ, the Messiah, would die? How is that going to make a difference in this world? Why don't you go and be with the Greeks? Why don't you do something of value with your life, Jesus? Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. God calls us to walk in the light of the love that Jesus has manifested for us on the cross. And later on, the beloved disciple John in 1 John chapter 2, he goes on to write about how he wants for us to experience that same exact thing, how God designs for us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John, and we're going to go to chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. He describes clearly what this light is like after saying back in in chapter 1 that if he is in the light, we should walk in the light. In verse 9, he says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see what it means to walk in the light? It means to love like Jesus loves. And friends, it's great that we have a hope clinic. In fact, we'll have it three times this coming 12-month period. That's fantastic, and it's a great opportunity. But Jesus calls us to something more than that. Jesus calls you and I to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. It's, it's a, an accomplished fact for you. It, you can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us, for we judge this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. It's an accomplished fact, and so day by day, if I believe in the accomplished fact of what Jesus has done for me, it will lead me to selflessly love. And that is attractive. Can you imagine what it was like, what it would be like if people knew the Templeton Hills Seventh-day Adventist Church, not just for the Hope Clinic that happens a few times a year where we come and we help and we heal people, but that they knew you as that Seventh-day Adventist neighbor who, no matter what's going on in their lives, they could turn to you and know that you'd set aside what you had going on to help them. What if they knew us as the ones who would gladly give of our money, who would gladly give of our resources 
And many of you, I know that that is how people know you. But Jesus is calling us to more. He's calling us to a more complete and full giving of ourselves in denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following after Jesus because the love of Christ compels us to this end. It is what we are called to. It's what Florence was called to, and it's what every Christian is called to. I love what it says in the book Christ Object Lessons, talking about this seed that's sown in the ground. Verse 87, it says, page 87, sorry, says, but the law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you hate your life, you will preserve it. The seed buried in the ground produces fruit. And in turn, this is planted. Thus, the harvest is multiplied. The husbandman preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. That's why Jesus says, going on in John chapter 12, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is exactly who God is. And to give is life. To live our lives in service is all that there is, God says. That's what life is all about. The life that will be preserved is a life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who for Christ's sake sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. Little Flo, at 17 years of age, heard God saying, God called me in the morning and asked me, would I do good for him alone without reputation? She was determined to follow this call. She began to give herself in service, even though her parents began to say, what are you doing? Her sister got so upset with her. Here they were just two years apart, and they would go to these socializing things together, and they would get suitors. Florence had man after man come after her, just like her parents had wanted to take place, inviting her to marry them. She was proposed to at least four different times that I read about. This is the dream that her sister had for her life. This is the dream that her parents had for her life. And each and every time, though, some of the men, she actually really liked them. But she was afraid because she was called to a life of service that this wouldn't work out. So man after man, she said, no, no, I'm sorry, no. It's not always popular to follow Jesus. It's not always popular to live a life of self-sacrificing love. That's exactly what Jesus finds out in John chapter 12. It tells us that some people believed in him, but they were worried about their reputation. If you look down in verse 42, it says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were unwilling to, to go to that extreme. It was too much what Jesus was calling them to. The religious leaders were going to throw them out of church. They weren't going to be able to, to be a part of society like they wanted to be anymore. And they said, I'm not going to go that distance. I believe in Jesus so long as it doesn't touch my life too closely. And friends, I have a confession to make. 
it's easy for me to just want to make people happy, to want the people around me to be pleased, to want to do the things that make others happy rather than to do whatever God's calling me to. And God is calling us to selflessly love, to selflessly sacrifice for the good of others. Verse 43, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. The word there is glory, doxa in the Greek. They love the glory of men more than they loved the glory of God. Friends, we're coming down to a time when the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of God. Jesus promises that I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. There's going to be coming an angel in Revelation 18 that's going to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. And that's going to come through you and I living self-sacrificing lives of love. And people are going to look and they're going to say, wow, Jesus is attractive. One way or another, it's going to push people towards him. Or people are going to choose to reject just like they chose to reject Jesus. This is the life that Jesus calls you and I to. The question is, will we do whatever it takes to follow? When Florence turned 30 years old, this is Florence Nightingale, if you haven't caught on by now. Florence Nightingale, when she turned 30, she said this, I am 30, the age at which Christ began his mission. I'm now 30 years old. This is the age when Jesus began to go around ministering to people, teaching people, healing people. Now, no more childish things. No more vain things. No more love. No more marriage. Now, Lord, let me only think of thy will. Now all I want to do, Jesus, is just to serve you. Now, God, all I want to do is to go and live my life in service to you. And Florence went the distance for that. If you know the story, the Crimea War took place, and Britain and France and Turkey were fighting against Russia. Crimea is still a place where a lot of fighting still takes place. And they were fighting against Uh, against Russia, and thousands of people were dying. But here's the thing. The majority of those men were wounded. More people died because of the care they were receiving in the hospitals. And word got back to Britain that France was taking better care of their wounded soldiers than Britain was. And this made the, the politicians in Britain upset to hear that France was doing a better job, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And so finally, that secretary of war that Florence had become friends with, called her and said, okay, I finally have a mission for you. I want you to go, even though no woman has ever gone into a military hospital before, I want you to get a team of nurses together and to take them to Crimea, to to where all of these wounded men are. So Florence quickly gathered together a team of volunteer nurses, 38 nurses, some of them were Anglican, some of them were Catholic, and She herself, I believe, was a Protestant. And she gathered them all together and took them off to Crimea. When they got there, the quarters that they gave Florence and her 39 other nurses was five rooms and one kitchen, and they were all rat-infested. So you imagine, now you have less than 40 people living in five rooms. They're rat-infested. Then they go through the, the hospital, and they find that that all the water is unsanitary, that the food has mold growing on it, that they're not cleaning the bedclothes of the people. They're not cleaning the sheets. In fact, a lot of the beds didn't even have sheets on them. 
Soldiers are dying from infections. The, the disease is just running rampant throughout. And she writes letters back to Britain saying, okay, I'm willing to do this, but you got to help us out. She goes out and she buys towels, she buys soaps, and she begins to, to scrub out <clears throat> this hospital. And she begins to do whatever it takes. Daily, they would clean the bed sheets of each and every one of the patients. The men began to know her as the lady of the lamp. Because she would work 22 to 24 hours. And they said we could have kissed her shadow when in the the middle of the night she would come through with a lamp. Everybody else is sleeping, but she would come through and continue ministering to our needs. God had called her to lay aside her reputation, to lay aside all that she hung on to, that her parents wanted for her, to give her life in service. And she served with all her heart. And it radically changed how many people died in that war. They said that the mortality rate was reduced by 66%. Can you imagine? 66% of the people that were dying did not die because of what she did. Thousands of people's lives were saved. And it didn't just end there. She came back to Great Britain after that, and she saw the hospital situation there, and and they used her to transform the hospitals in Britain. She would work for people in the slums. She would work for the, the drug addicts, the drunks. She would do whatever it takes to provide people the care that they needed. And because of that, today we look at nurses as a, 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 a reputable calling. Today they're not drunks. Today hospitals are clean. They're sanitized. People came from around the world, in fact, to find out what Florence Nightingale's secret was. The President of the United States interviewed Florence Nightingale during the Civil War to figure out how he could make the facilities for wounded soldiers better. The Queen, Victoria, Queen of England, had personal sit-downs with Florence, and she ended up giving her this, this diamond and this huge award that no woman had ever earned before. Do you remember what Jesus promised in John chapter 12? He said, him who serves me, the Father will honor him. That's not why we do it. But in the end, when we give our lives in selfless service, it changes the world, and through that comes an honor that is above all honors, and that is seeing Jesus lifted up in people's lives, seeing them fall in love with Jesus. Reflecting Christ, page 341, says the harvest... In the harvest, the seed is multiplied. A single grain of wheat increased by repeated sowings would cover a whole land with golden sheaves. So widespread may be the influence of a single life, of even a single act. You see what God is calling us to? It may be that what you have to do tomorrow is not grand and glorious. It may be that what you have to do on a daily basis in ministering to people and loving people is not seem like a high calling, but it will make a difference. Jesus promises if you live this life, in the end there is a glorious end in eternity. I am setting before you a joy that is beyond your wildest comprehension. But not only that, Signs of the Times, November 25, 1886, says our happiness will be proportionate to our unselfish works, which are prompted by divine love. There's nothing better 
than serving out of a prompting of divine love in our lives. There's no greater happiness than to live our lives in service for others. So I just want to say thank you. It's been overwhelming to see the number of volunteers that we have coming to the clinic tomorrow. Thank you for being willing to serve. I want to challenge you to serve not for yourselves, but to serve for the purpose of lifting somebody else's life up. Even if it's just a smile that you give, even if it's just to be extra courteous, if you see somebody lost in the lobby, to make sure that they find their way to the place that they need to be. And don't let it just be a one-day thing. But may this be the determination of our hearts and our lives that we, just like Florence Nightingale, will follow in the footsteps of Jesus in giving our lives in selfless service. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you to kneel with me as we pray. Jesus, thank you for calling us. Thank you for, first of all, displaying your love. Lord God, these are tough callings that you've placed on our lives. You've called us to die. And God, we like to live. But Lord, we want to be crucified with Christ so that we no longer live. Father, you've called us to follow you. And we want to be with you. You've called us to hate our lives. And God, sometimes we just love our lives. But Jesus, thank you that you promise that those who serve you, you will honor. That we can be crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but that it's Jesus who lives in us. Lord God, as we go from this place, may it not be just with the determination to work ourselves up to love more but may it be the love of Christ that compels us. May it be with a determination to look to the cross, to look at the love that is without parallel, and may that love stir our hearts to greater acts of service, to greater acts of love. Father, please, we need you. Please fill us with the Holy Spirit. Please fill this church with the Holy Spirit. May people come in contact with you tomorrow. And Lord, may they come in contact with you on a daily basis as we live our lives in selfless service for the good of others. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.